We have you covered on what happened before Big Ben's throw. We have you covered on what happened before Santonio Holmes' catch. Now it's actually time to hear the moments that turned Pittsburgh into Sixburg. We proved the doubters wrong. We overcame a daunting schedule, and we showed out as one of the most dominating defenses of all time. This is the season, 2008 Steelers Super Bowl edition. Welcome Steelers Nation, I am Bryant McFadden, your host and cornerback on the 2008 Pittsburgh Steelers. On this podcast, I have revisited our Super Bowl run from a decade ago with former teammates, coaches, delivering you behind the scenes insights and memories on the biggest plays and personalities from that memorable season. This is the final installment as we finally arrive at Super Bowl 43. This is part two of our Super Bowl special. If you missed part one, scroll back in your feed to catch up on all the hype leading to the game. Plus a first half breakdown. On this episode, we'll cover the second half and the aftermath of the Steelers' victory. In case you missed the last episode, this Super Bowl podcast will sound a little bit different. They won't feature a singular guest, but rather a collection of Steeler players, coaches, Cardinals, and media members. We'll discuss everything from February 1st, 2009 in Tampa, Florida, the night we hosted the Sticky Lombardi. We pick up at halftime with a Steelers lead of 17-7. to how did we get there? Simply with the greatest football play I've ever seen. Offense, defense, special teams, whatever you want. That's right. With no time left on the second quarter clock, James Harrison fell into the end zone after returning an interception 100 yards to extend our advantage and give us all the momentum we needed heading into the break. Now, it felt like it took James Harrison an hour to run that ball back. Halftime itself actually lasted nearly that long. There was one pro, but mostly cons, for safety Ryan Clark in the locker room. One, I was tired from running that far, so I was happy we had a little bit of time. Um, <laughs> number two, like you just hate waiting long. You know, you're not used to it. It's, it's different. Your normal routine of bathroom, oranges, water, talk to coach is thrown off. You got to sit around a little bit, and not to mention the adrenaline pumping, not only from the play you just made, but knowing you're a half away from accomplishing the dreams and the goals that you set before the season. So halftime was treacherous. I hated the halftime. I hated it being so long. I was just ready to get out there. So you had to calm yourself, be patient, talk a little bit longer, focus on what you had to do, get some last-second coaching points, and understand that there was still a half yet to be played. Bruce Springsteen's set wasn't super enjoyable in the press box either, at least for CBS Sports writer, Pete Prisco. I'm not a big Springsteen fan, so I can't, I'm not going to, I like Bon Jovi. Can I admit that? The other New Jersey guy. So Bruce performs 10th Avenue Freeze Out, Born to Run, Working on a Dream, and Glory Days. 30 minutes of football separated us from regaining glory as we retook the field with a 10-point cushion. Because they deferred the coin toss earlier, Arizona got the ball to begin the second half. The Cardinals got the ball into our territory, but James Ferrier came up with a crucial third-down stop, 
initially ruled a fumble, later switched to a sack. That gave us possession back. Uh, I think it was the right call. I think his arm was moving forward. But, you know, me looking back on it and thinking about, you know, I definitely should have swatted as a ball. But I wanted to try to uh, remove a couple of his ribs. So you know, I just tried to hit him as hard as I could. <laughs> Uh, something that defenders can't do on quarterbacks nowadays, trying to to remove ribs. Oh, I would have been kicked out of the game. and Oh, man, it would have been, ooh, that would have been a Super Bowl fine. That would have been bad. What ensued next was a near-perfect drive. I say near-perfect because after 8 minutes and 34 seconds, yes, 8 minutes and 34 seconds, a 14-play drive, 79 yards. We had to settle for three points. Jeff Reed booted through a 21-yard field goal to go up 20-7. to Things were looking real, real good for the Steelers. We knew the potential of that Cardinals offense, though. It was difficult because, if you remember, they were the reason they made it to the Super Bowl. That team wasn't supposed to get to the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. That wasn't coming into the playoffs, the team we were projected to play. People just couldn't stop them. The, the, the way that they were scoring points, and you got Kurt Warner, who is a Hall of Famer now, who had been a part of two of the greatest offenses ever put together, they were clicking on like an all-time high level. And we knew we were very good defensively. We knew we had very good pieces, but we understood we had to bring it because winning that game, at least we thought before the game, was going to be on us making the big stops late and controlling this offense. Uh, But it turns out we needed a little help. They finally struck with 741 remaining in the game. Kurt Warner and Larry Fitzgerald connected for a one-yard touchdown. That wouldn't be the only time they hook up for the rest of the game. Fast forward a few minutes, and we're up 20-14 to with the ball. Three minutes and four seconds remaining. But we're on our one-yard line. And the danger of being backed up on the one is that a holding call could result in a safety. And that's exactly what happened as Justin Hardwick was flagged. Arizona got the ball down just four. Two plays later, Larry Fitzgerald takes off in a blur, 64 yards to the house. And all I saw was dreads and cleats and a surrendered lead. I relived that play with Fitz's teammate, Antrell Rowe, who incidentally collided with Fitzgerald on James Harrison's interception return for a touchdown at the end of the first half, possibly preventing Larry from making a touchdown saving tackle. Thank you, Antrell. <laughs> There was no stopping Fitz this time over the middle of the field. A conversation that we've had amongst ourselves. I had Ike Taylor on in one of the earlier episodes, and we talked about that play. And we both said the same thing. Literally on the field, I've never seen a man run that fast. And I played against a lot of fast players, and I know you played against a lot of fast players that were known to be speed guys, right? We're known to be four twos and legit four threes. Larry Fitzgerald has never been known to be a speed guy. You know, he's more so a, a skillful wide receiver, great catcher, but never known to be a speed guy. But when he caught that slant and we were in 55, which is, which was a two man coverage. And of course, Ro, you know about two man corners have to play inside leverage, can't allow the wide receiver to get inside. You have two deep, uh, uh, half safeties over the top. And the weakness of that defense is any outside route, any outside cut. But you can't allow them to get inside of you because the middle of the field is wide open. Hence, the slant went down the field for a touchdown. And when he got inside of Ike, all I I saw was dreads and cleats. Because I think I was covering (laughs) Steve Breston at that time. 
Steve ran a little right. pivot route. He pivoted in. He wrote back out. I looked back. We both looked back. The ball was going in the middle of the field. Fitzgerald caught. He Fitz caught, catches the ball. Dreads and cliques. So when you saw that play, knowing you needed a huge play to get back into the ball game, what was going through your mind on that great executed play by Kurt Warner and Larry Fitz? Man, I was I was I was ecstatic, you know, at that moment. I just kept screaming, Yes, yes, and, and to be honest with you, you know, we all wanted that game and I can't say one person wanted it more than the other, but I can say that one particular individual wanted more than the other, and that's Larry Fitzgerald. You know, he, I remember talking to him before that game, and he had a mindset that he was going to go out there and win that game for his mom, and he wasn't going to be denied. And I remember watching him on that play, and I said, this guy's going to win the game for us. I don't, I don't know how, but he's going to win the game for us single-handedly. And that's what I remember thinking through the course of that play when I saw this man split – the defense, as, as you said, and run away from a 4-3 Troy Palomalu. Like, literally made Troy shut it down. And we know that Troy can run. We all know that Troy can run. So when I saw that, I'm like, this guy has someone in the higher power pushing him from behind. That's what it had to be because I've never seen Larry Fitzgerald run remotely that fast before. Larry, Larry was a 4-6 was a guy. He was a 4-6 guy probably on a good day coming out of college. And he caught that slant, and you could not have told me that he was not running a 4-2 running down the middle of that field. I agree. Easily. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's just it's crazy, like you say, that just the eternal events and the, the big plays that took place throughout the course of the game, that's how the game was determined. That's how the game was won. I don't think it was just between those white lines. I think it's because of the big plays that happened throughout the course of the game. Luckily, we had a big play left, but linebacker James Ferrier thought it may have been the moment where he lost out on a rank. Yeah, I mean, you, you're playing, you know, inside. No, don't let your guy inside. Ike, uh, Larry Fitzgerald just ran a quick, a, a quick in route. What do you call it? I think he ran, it was a slant. A slant, a quick yeah. slant, quick slant, and it looked like the Red Sea had parted. <laughs> and I just remember looking back. I remember looking back and just seeing nobody on the field from any angle that was going to catch that man. And I just saw my uh, Super Bowl dreams go up in smoke and Larry Foote's uh, back back pocket. <laughs> I mean, Larry know, Fitzgerald's back pocket. And, you know, Fitz was never considered to be a speed demon. But I don't know if I ever saw an individual run as fast as he was running at that time. Like you said, it's almost like, like the Red Sea parted. He looked like yes. the same boat, man. <laughs> and it was just nobody. I didn't see it, man. It was just a scary look. It was a scary look. A scary sight for Steeler fans to look at the scoreboard, seeing us down 23-20 to 20 with 247 remaining. Offensive coordinator Bruce Arians was worrying about his offense's health. Me to look at the clock. You know, I think it was 2.30, something like that, and we had a couple of timeouts. And uh, get all that information. Um, the guys were pumped on the sideline. And, uh, you know, people didn't realize, though, at the time, we only had two viable receivers in the game. Hines was dead. I mean, his knee was shot. Uh, he was like a decoy at best. Uh, Nate Washington had separated his shoulder early in the game. Um, San Antonio Holmes and Heath Miller were really our only two viable receivers. 
There were no such concerns or lack of confidence in Ben, but rather a simple message for the fifth-year quarterback. They were built for this. Go get them. Don't be afraid. And suddenly it became the Big Ben and Santonio Holmes show. Once they hit Holmes in the middle of the field, remember they hit him on like a long play in the middle of the field that kind of got him going on that drive. Then I said, okay, this is going to get really interesting. Pete Prisco is referencing the 40-yard strike to Santonio down to the Cardinals' six. That came after two previous completions from Big Ben to Tone for 27 yards. Yeah, you know, we started that drive. First play, we get a holding penalty. So we got to go 92 yards. And uh, But that play you're talking about where we have an in route and Ben pumps left, sits the safety down, and then hits Tone. He spins out, which he was great at. And, and – uh put us right in the scoring range. And Trail Roll breaks down the Cardinals' defensive philosophy on that final drive. Well, you know, I, I feel throughout the course of the game, I think we did a, a fairly decent job, um, you know, defending him. But the last series, man, he, I mean, you know, he, he went to work on DRC. It was pretty much a man-to-man coverage, which I don't necessarily agree with all the calls that were being made. I felt like, you know, once he caught the first two passes, we should have probably switched it up a little bit. But, you know, we stayed in it. We stayed DRC was someone that we had very high, a high hopes for, someone that we, we believed in, and we knew that he can get the job done. It's just sometimes, unfortunately, great offense is better than good defense, and that was just a, a clear-cut case of what took place in our last series when Santonio Holmes pretty much went down the field and won the game for the Pittsburgh Steelers by himself. Well, not entirely by himself. With 42 seconds remaining, trailing 23-20 to 20 on second and six with six yards to go, Ben dropped, pumped fake in the pocket, delivered the most perfect pass you will ever see to the back corner of the end zone, threw a sea of red into the outstretched hands of Santonio Holmes, and make no mistake, his two feet were in. Well, it was right in front of me, and I knew he had both. I knew he had both feet down. He never left the ground, and uh, I, I knew it was a touchdown right off the bat. But from James Ferrier's vantage point, he wasn't sure. Uh, I was. I remember sitting up on the bench, and we could the angle we were at, we couldn't see like what was going on. So when Ben threw the ball, it looked like it was so high that you know I thought it was going to be an incomplete pass, or he wasn't going to be able to get his feet in. Whoever I didn't see who was throwing it to. And I heard the fans cheer, and I heard them signal touchdown. And I was like, mm, I don't really know about this one. Let's, you know, just wait and see. And once the review came back and they said it was a touchdown, boy, the whole stadium just was just elated. I mean, it was, yeah. That was like, oh, man, we did it. As the ball was in the air, a lot was going through our heads. Ryan Clark and Larry Foote discussed their emotions. So my eyes are watering because I thought we had blown it, to be honest with you, Matt. I don't know about you, but I thought to myself, we were the greatest defense ever assembled numerically, and we alone blew the Super Bowl. We give up two fourth-quarter touchdowns, one to Larry Fitzgerald in the same 55, two-man you're talking about, and we had an offense who wasn't moving the ball well in the second half. And then Ben and Tone take over. You know, they're, 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 there's mic'd up video of Tone saying, get me the ball, throw me the ball. And that's what we did. We threw it to him and we threw it to him. And it was an incomplete pass that he probably should have caught the play before. And then, you know, they talk about Tony toe-tap. It had to start with him. <laughs> I mean, no it's, it's, an, it's, it's, a, it's an improbable catch. I was 
you know how it happens. You follow the ball down the field. So all of us are standing down toward the end, just just want to see, you know, what's going to happen. And it's a ball bent. I was like, oh, Ben threw it away, you know. And, and out of nowhere, a 10 reaches up, grabs it, gets the toes down. Just an amazing play, man. And I tell people all the time, Ben Roethlisberger, Santonio Holmes, you always good with me. Because it's because of y'all, we have a Super Bowl. I have a Super Bowl. It was a no great question. Play. I just remember we probably was all on, uh, you know, one knee praying, or both <laughs> knees praying. And, uh, you know, being, you know, he playing as a zone, being, uh, started scrambling. And we knew that, uh, I mean, Santonio Holmes had a phenomenal career, but he was lights out all season. And, you know, being through where he was the only guy that could catch it. And Santonio, you know, Got the toes in, and uh, we won our second Super Bowl. And while Santonio Holmes was the primary option that entire final drive, he was actually the third option on that final play. The primary was the back in the flat, and then Heinz Ward sitting on the goal line, and Tone runs a corner route behind him, and uh, then, then pumped the back really to a hard pump, and Heinz in the, in the corner bit just enough. And when he threw it, I, I thought it was picked. And everybody talks about the catch, but I don't know how many guys can make that throw. That throw was amazing. But the catch should have never happened, according to Antrell Rowe. He and I went in depth on Arizona's perspective on one of the most legendary plays in Super Bowl history. Okay, so we knew that since that Ben Roethlisberger loved to throw the seven route, which is a corner cut to the, to the back pylon of the end zone. They had tried it three times previously before in that game, and it was unsuccessful just because Ben missed Santonio Holmes twice from an overthrow. And, you know, I don't, I don't remember what happened the third time. But this was pretty much the fourth time that they, they ran that same play, the play before, to the opposite side, and Ben Roethlisberger overthrew Santonio. So the only thing they did was take it, instead of them running it to their left, they ran it to their right. And we had a box coverage, which is you have a guy on the middle inside low. You have a guy on the outside low. You have a guy on the inside high. You have a guy on the outside high. So the weak point of that is the middle of the box. Well, obviously, there was no one in the middle of the box. And actually, on that play, I remember Ben Roethlisberger's first read was to Nate Washington, who was in the middle of the field. Me being the back safety, I read Ben Roethlisberger's eyes, and I jumped the route. Nate Washington fell, and I remember the only thing I thought was money time. I just knew that he was throwing that ball. It was going to be an interception because Nate Washington had fallen. So Ben gathers himself up as a big Ben we all know and scrambles out to the right and literally just throws the best pass of his lifetime to Santonio home in the corner of the end zone. We had Ralph Brown, who was on the bottom right corner. You had DRC, who was in the back left corner, who was playing high. You have Francisco that was in the top inside. The ball was thrown to the, to the back pylon on the outside, which is where DRC was supposed to be. When Ben Roethlisberger scrambled to his right, then came to lunch the football, DRC jumped the guy in the flat, and we already had Ralph Brown there. So when he jumped the guy in the flat, it left Antonio Holmes wide open. And Francisco made an amazing attempt to try to go over there and disrupt the play and break up the pass, 
But obviously, we all know what took place. He got there just a second too late, but it was not his responsibility. That responsibility was DRC's, and he owns it, and he admits it, and he understands it. It helped him grow later for, for moments that he would then have to face later in his career. But it's just so unfortunate that that won the game for the Pittsburgh Steelers. So had DRC been in a position like he was supposed to be, it would have been an interception. And we all know, Brian McFadden, that if DRC would have intercepted that ball, there's not anyone on the Pittsburgh Steelers offense that was going to catch him. Yeah. And so not to mention he was that, probably going to dance halfway to the end zone. Oh, um, even yeah, when he got into the end no, zone. <laughs> no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Especially being 30 minutes away from his home, he was going to show out. Wow. I mean, that, that's that's great insight because, you know, for me, my, my, my viewpoint was from the sideline. And watching from the sideline along with watching and looking at the Jumbotron to be able to get an over or uh, a, a wide view of the entire field, not realizing it was a basic, basically a high-low concept. And like you said, DRC took the low and left the high, which which like Francisco was still able to almost make a huge play because absolutely it wasn't a lot of separation as far as where the ball was being placed, as far as Antonio being able to be inbound still and being able to catch the football before Francisco made a play on the ball. But that that's quality intel, something that I did not know. Um, literally, I just thought it was a great a well-executed play from the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I just felt like our execution was better than the Arizona Cardinals' execution defensively, but you just broke it down to whereas it was one player not being where he was supposed to be that allowed us to win that ball game. Absolutely, 200%. If, if the play was run the way it was supposed to be ran, no one had to literally move. DRC did not have to move. Francisco didn't have to move. Ralph Brown who was playing the flat, did not have to move. And the play would have fallen right into their arms because Ben Roethlisberger had nowhere else to go with the ball. Mm-hmm. It was either he was going to take a sack or he was going to throw an interception. Those were the only two options he had left. No one would have told me in a million years that he was going to complete a touchdown on that play because of the call that was made defensively. Hey, we'll take it. Sometimes champions need a little luck. After Santonio Holmes' touchdown catch, actually a little while longer after the TD was confirmed by replay review, <laughs> we were crowned champions once again, 27-23, to the final score. We danced, we hugged, and we hoisted the sticky Lombardi. Bruce Arians and Ryan Clark had pretty calm post-game celebrations. Oh, gosh, it was a it was a great night. Uh, the LeBeau family and our family all sat at one table and we were in a hotel with, that was chopped up with about four or five different parties on in the same area. I don't think I ever ran into Ben till it was about three o'clock in the morning, but, uh, it was a great, great time. Just hang out, man. Just chill, feel blessed, be, be very excited. We won. Most of all, I was just relieved. I was more so relieved that we didn't lose it than I was excited we won the game. And so for me, I was just happy that we accomplished a, a goal and, and a dream of winning it all, and I was just excited we did it together. Meanwhile, James Ferrier had quite the adventure. After the game? Yeah. Oh, man, after the game, I ended up missing the bus to go back to the hotel, so I ended up walking down, up and down the street, 
<laughs> my suit and my uh my suit and my subo robe, smoking a cigar. Wait, wait a minute. Super Bowl champ. You were walking down the street yeah. with your suit on and your Super Bowl robe with a cigar, trying to get back to the hotel. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what I was gonna do. My phone was dead, so I really couldn't had any way <laughs> of communicating with anybody. I didn't have anybody's phone number, so you know, yeah, I was. I was figuring that, you know, I was so happy that I really didn't care. You know, I figured I would get home sooner or later. I was so happy about winning the Super Bowl. It really didn't matter what time I got home or how I got home. I knew I would get home. How did you miss the bus? Uh, just, I don't know. Just so happy. Trying to think, I don't know. I have no idea. (laughs) I don't don't remember. (laughs) Well, we know one thing. You did get back to the hotel safe and sound. Yes, we I did. That I got back to the hotel. The head of security came and looked for me, man. He, he, he could sense that I was missing. He didn't, he didn't see me on the bus, so they came back and they were back and found me. Two days later, we could be found on the streets of Pittsburgh celebrating our sixth Super Bowl with Steeler Nation. It made it hard to deny. The Steelers are America's team. Thank you, Steeler Nation and football fans, for tuning in to the season. 2008 Steelers is taking a trip back in time 10 years ago and reliving some details that I vividly remember and some that I completely forgot about. And a very special thanks to all my guests this season, including Ike Taylor, Heinz Ward, Lamar Woodley, Dick LeBeau, Deshae Townsend, Nate Washington, Larry Foote, Tyrone Carter, James Ferrier, Ryan Clark, Heath Miller, Bruce Arians, Antrail Roll and Pete Prisco. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. Even though our recap is over, stay subscribed to this feed for bonus episodes that could be released in the near future or even potential new seasons. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. This is Bryant McFadden, BMAC, signing off. Go Steelers! And in the words of legendary Dick LeBeau, adios.